when we think about clothing, you know, if you explore the energetic relationship between purchasing Mm -hmm. a garment and really thinking about what is this material? What's that doing to my body? What's that doing to the environment? The people who made it, what's their quality of life? You know, and ultimately, what is me wearing this and supporting that going out into the world? What is that feeding? You know, like, which wolf are you feeding kind of a thing? And there's so much in that. You're listening to The Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Hello, Mom. Hi. This is a really exciting weekend because... We are finally turning the corner into spring. Yes, it's the big weekend, the spring equinox. Yes. So the equinox technically in the Northern Hemisphere says it's happening at 1130 a.m. on Sunday, March 20th. Okay, there you go. So what happens in the spring equinox? You know? No, tell me. Well, I can't get too scientific, but it just means that the earth has reached another point in its journey. We're halfway between the winter solstice and the summer solstice with the spring equinox. And we are headed to West Virginia today for a spring equinox retreat. Yes. With our friend V, who is now running Sun Chaser retreats and... We can't wait to report back and tell y'all how it is. Yes, and that sounds interesting to you, a retreat in wild and wonderful West Virginia where we're going to do a lot of walking, eating, having fun sitting around bonfire. Gosh, we're going to do some vision boarding. We're going to have a lady farmer bundle dyeing workshop. Lots of stuff. And V is planning to do these retreats seasonally. So if this sounds like something you're interested in, You can check the show notes for her email and write her about it and come join us. Yeah. And so we're excited about the recent release of the book, Our Wild Farming Life. If you'll remember in episode 77, we talked to Lynn Cassell of Lynn Brecht Croft in Scotland, telling us all about their farming adventure. And remember, you can order that book in our online store and tell more about that. Yeah, if you order the book in our online store, then with your purchase comes a free ticket to a meet and greet author event that we'll be having in April. So you have time to order the book and read the book and then come meet Lynn, who is just so fun. And as you'll see, if you listen to episode 77, where we interviewed her, she's a joy. So we can't wait to see you and Lynn at our meet the greet. And we hope that you enjoy this awesome book, Our Wild Farming Life. Yeah. So what does wild farming life make you think of, mom? Well, as I was telling you a little bit earlier, 
ever since we had that interview with Lynn, she was speaking to us from Scotland, and it made me think of shortbread. Mm. This has been several weeks ago when it was winter, and I started thinking about, oh, I want to make some Scottish shortbread. But since I can never follow a recipe, as you know, I decided I was going to try to come up with my own shortbread recipe that was sort of ginger-centric. That makes okay. any sense. A ginger shortbread. Ginger forward. <laughs> okay. How would you say that? Yeah. I wanted a ginger shortbread. Okay. And so I started playing around with the recipe and I've come up with it's it's more like an oat cracker. It's really good. It does taste like those Effie's oat cakes if you've ever had them. Yeah, so I ended up even like abandoning like regular flour. I'm using oat flour. Mm-hmm. And I've created sort of a basic recipe and I made a ginger version of it and just have really been enjoying it so much. And it's been fun and it's just been such a great little chilly weather thing to have with tea or Mm -hmm. like with breakfast. And so that's sort of like a cold weather version of it. But I've been toying around with some spring versions of this recipe. So you have more like a little spring oat cake. Yum. With maybe some edible flowers, maybe some lemon. Still working on those. But that's all to say, I have shared that recipe in the Almanac. Oh, yes. So, so Almanac members, if you're listening, make sure you go get it. And if you know about borsin, that spreadable cheese, I had some borsin on this oat oh, yeah. cracker. It was so good. Quite delicious. Also in the Almanac is our workshop from last year where I teach people how to make the borsin cheese out of kefir. Remember that? Yeah. That is in the Almanac. But what if you're listening to this and you're not a member of the Almanac? What do you do? You could go to our website, ladyfarmer.com, and click on Community. We'll actually be starting in our spring season really soon in the Almanac, so it's a great time to join. We'd love to have you. We hope that you've been enjoying the good dirt, and we thank you so much for tuning in every week. If you enjoy this episode, we hope that you'll share it with a friend. We're so excited to get into this one. Our guest today is Megan Borkowski with Sister Nettle. I've been following Megan for a while now on Instagram. She is a mother, entrepreneur, and artist. She owns Sister Nettle, as I said. She lives in Tennessee on a small farm property with birds, plants, and her family. Her work centers around creating with natural textiles, using botanical dyes, slow fashion, local sourcing, and collaboration over competition. Megan strives to offer things that are fulfilling to both the makers and the recipients, creating a beautiful and reciprocal relationship. And everything about interacting with her in this interview directly reflects that. She is so community and reciprocity minded. and She has a really cool background story, and I just loved hearing all about her journey from her off-grid living and her art and then kind of to building the business that she is now. Yes, really enjoyed talking to Megan about her life of embracing all the wonderful values of slow living. Thank you again for listening in today and we hope you enjoy this conversation with Megan. I'm Meg Borkowski. I'm the owner and creator behind Sister Nettle. So this was not something that I sat down one day and said, 
I'm gonna do this <laughs> and one day run a you know a company where I create clothes and other things and work with lots of different women and makers I definitely never ever envisioned that I was just frankly trying to get out of service jobs myself and enjoyed embroidering was embroidering on clothing for friends and family and yeah I just you know took a leap of faith for myself where I didn't want to have to work for anybody else and challenged myself to embroider for for a year and make a living doing it. I mean, I certainly didn't make very much my first year, but I did, you know, achieve that and just connected with so many people through uh, Instagram, did lots of custom projects and things and really kind of started to find my niche where I loved working with clothing for people. And so from there, I loved it. I wanted to continue it, but to just embroider clothing, you know, what you need to really charge to be paying yourself a living wage to hand embroider clothing is certainly doable, but I would say makes your customer base a little more limited because a lot of people can't afford what you would really need to charge <laughs> to feel like you're charging a fair price for how much time hand embroidery takes. Yeah. So I was at this crossroads where I realized, you know, I wanted to keep working with clothing, but wanted to have more accessible products. So that kind of led me to playing around with block printing with ink on fabric and on clothing. And it's pretty much expanded from there. Like that did very well. I loved it, was working solo for again, another year, printing everything myself, designing everything, shipping everything out by myself and reached a tipping point there where I was like, well, if I want to continue at this pace and still have the time to like be an artist again, you know, because I kind of reached a point where I was just answering emails and shipping out products and just printing and I wasn't creating anything new for months and months. So that led me to deciding to hire people. And so I now have a small team that helps me with customer service and shipping and they also block print alongside me. So that's kind of arriving where I currently am. So do you have a studio where you live and you do things on, on the premises and how, how does that work? Yeah, so I actually just moved. I'm I'm like literally living out of boxes right now. We moved over the weekend. <laughs> but wow. um yeah, so I will have a good sized studio here in the basement and because I've kind of organized hired people. Uh, it's usually like people who I knew already. A lot of them already have their own small businesses, you know, where they do part-time work and kind of do their own thing and then also do things for Sister Nettle. So right now my whole team does a lot of their work remotely. And then when we ship out product once a week or every other week, we all come together to my studio and ship out product from there. But my block printers print from home in their own studio spaces and the different people who like I work with some dye artists and some sewists and they all also work from home. Where are you exactly? I'm in Knoxville, Tennessee. Oh my goodness, Knoxville, Tennessee. You're the second person we've interviewed in a couple of months that's from Knoxville and I grew up in really? East Tennessee in Kingsport. Oh, okay. Yep. I know where that is. Yeah. My parents are still there. <laughs> So you, um, you did mention in your story a little bit of like you were looking to get out of the service industry, but I'm wondering more to what drew you to these kind of slower arts and, and mm -hmm. crafting and the way that we see it and the way that you talk about too, it's, it's very sustainable and in sync with nature and all of those mm -hmm. things. So have you always been interested in those things? Was there a moment where you were more drawn to those things or tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. And before all this started, it was like slow fashion and the problems in the fashion industry that mm -hmm. what you do is 
is sort of a reaction against that, Mm -hmm. an alternative, I would say. Yeah. So also kind of arrived at that just through exploring things. But I originally, you know, the way that I came to embroider and be doing slow art like that was because I was actually living off grid. I was homesteading at the time. And so it was something I could do without a lot of space or electricity. And, you know, it was an accessible art form in that way. And so that was what kind of got me initially just doing embroidery, like for fun for myself as a hobby, but obviously it grew from there. And prior to that, I had always been artistic as a teenager and as a kid, but I definitely in adulthood and just like the hustle and the grind of life had in a lot of ways really stepped away from that. So it was kind of like, a returning back to self, you know, starting to do that. And when I was living off grid, we were living on almost 40 acres at the time. And so I spent a lot of time out in nature, but I was in homesteading, living off grid. I was doing this deep dive, learning about the sustainability of our homes and our resources and foraging and growing your own food and just really exploring what all of that meant for me and how I was going to incorporate that in my life and what felt true for me. And so that was the door opening to having, you know, more of a relationship with the living world and with plants and also thinking about these elements of sustainability. So that was already really a part of my personal life, you know, that I was living in these ways. And so it kind of came naturally that as I started to think, oh, I'm going to you know, make and sell clothing, how is this going to work? That it always felt for obvious for me personally, that I would move in a direction where I started asking those questions and researching, like, you know, what materials do I want to use? How do I want to source this product? Who's going to make it? And, you know, another element that's really like, personal for me, you know, there's the slow fashion element, but I also kind of feel like I'm a little bit different than companies who maybe come from a corporate world or kind of like come from this big business aspect and are like shifting over to slow fashion. I really feel like I'm just an artist who does what feels like right for me and especially in right relationship with the women that I work with. And so that was always kind of my initial focus. Like I didn't start out and think, oh, I'm going to call myself a slow fashion brand. I was more like, oh, well, if I'm going to expand, I want to hire women and people to do things that they really want to do in their life that they feel called to do that they feel excited to do and you know ideally leave a job that isn't fulfilling that purpose for them Mm -hmm. so that was really like my core thing and then obviously within that you know a lot of these people's passions and mine all aligned with working with natural dyes and working with natural fibers and obviously paying all of them a living wage you know where they're working at home in an environment they want to And all of that is really ends up being aligned with slow fashion, if that makes sense. Of course. (laughs) I really like the way that you come from the intention and essence of whatever it is we call slow fashion and not just using it as a label. Right. And just tacking it onto something that you do. And, you know, I think slow fashion and sustainable fashion, all those things have become such buzzwords that Mm -hmm. it is the responsibility of the consumer to really look into the brands and say, why do they call it that? Yes. That word pops up so much now and you go in and you dig in and you have to figure out what your own definition of sustainability is and and go from there. But I love the way you came to it. You had the concept first (laughs) before the label. (laughs) And right. You just sort of glazed over like, oh, I was living off grid. Like, yeah. what? You were 
guys living <laughs> off grid? Yeah, I want to hear that story. A little bit more yeah. about that. So me and my now husband, we were just engaged at the time. So growing up, I lived in Ohio is where I'm from. And I grew up in the city never was anything like that but my dad when I was a little bit older ended up buying almost 40 acres in very rural Ohio and he had a a pole barn put up there for storage and camping and things like that and I don't know when my husband and I met we just kind of went off on our wild-haired adventure (laughs) decided we wanted to follow our hearts. We didn't picture life for ourselves just being like working a nine to five in a suburb. So we really just became passionate about it. Before I met him, I did own my own home and I had a plan of having a few chickens and having a garden in the backyard. You know, for me, that was like the dream, you know, Mm -hmm. then meeting him, it it like got way bigger and, and more dramatic. And so we initially shopped for properties and thought about getting a farm house and it really just wasn't super affordable for us. So we ended up deciding to essentially build out that pole barn on my dad's property. We turned it into a small cabin and collected rainwater. We had solar power. We heated with wood heat. So yeah, so that was how that happened. It was kind of a big experiment because we really knew nothing about anything and no one in our family did. You know, we obviously researched law. We were on tons of Facebook groups and things figuring it out as we went and we lived out there for almost two years because there's one thing like yeah you can build out a barn I just feel like the decision to be off-grid is like super intentional and specific so Mm -hmm. where did that come from was that a cost thing yeah so we weren't like we didn't initially set out and say we want to live off-grid somewhere we were like we want to you know live somewhere where we can grow our own food and Mm -hmm. you know be in touch with nature and kind of get back to the land so deciding to do the build out at my dad's property it was very inaccessible and remote it was on a very long the driveway was an used to be an old railroad track and so it was a very long drive it was deep between these two hills it was like back in the hauler and they had gotten a quote at one point to run electric and it would have been like fifty thousand dollars to get power back there yeah so we knew like it was we weren't going to be able to get normal electricity and in kind of you know, comparing our options, we just kind of became excited about trying being off grid and, you know, using solar and collecting rainwater, like those things that a lot of ways make sense, especially if you're starting from the ground up with a property Mm -hmm. to implement those from the get go. So that was how that came. Yeah. Again, another thing that kind of like just through being open, I feel like a lot of things have happened for me because I didn't always just like assume I had to go the most straightforward route or the most normal route, but like really left it open-ended of what life might look like for me, whether it's in my home or with my work. And that's led me to these sort of alternative pursuits. That's amazing. And then living off grid, that must have been, I mean, that's a whole podcast in of itself, but sort of deciding (laughs) to transition out of that. Can you talk a little bit about maybe like the culture shock of that or like, were you like ready? Was it something you were excited for? Are there aspects of living off grid that you miss? Yeah, that question is like definitely close to my heart because we both definitely really miss being on so much land 
it was really private and I was really blessed to be able to go walk through the wooded hillsides there and see a lot of undisturbed nature and it was really formative time for me where again unintentionally was introduced to the plant world in a way that I had never been you know there's a difference between just like people enjoying going for a hike and just enjoying the nice weather or the greenery and actually walking through the woods and seeing a plant and feeling like it's an old friend and someone you know, you know things about. Maybe you even came there because you saw them there last year and you were excited that they were going to bloom again, you know. So that happened for me, uh, totally unexpected at that property. And so it's really a precious memory for me having been able to be there. You know, I feel Mm -hmm. like it changed my life. So I definitely miss that. We would, of course, love to be on our own 40 acres right now, but that's just not realistic financially. Yeah. The main reasons that we decided to step away from that property were, I would say two things. One, because we kind of knew it wasn't realistic to ever run power there. And we did feel like because of my husband's livelihood, he works on cars for a living and he's very like a mechanically minded person and having the limitation of not having any electricity to access we felt like that wasn't going to be long-term suited for us Mm -hmm. to have if that makes sense and the other major thing was the property was mostly hill and we had the pole barn on the one pocket, maybe two-ish acres that were flat, but they also happened to be between two huge hillsides. And so there was really like heavy seasonal flooding in that area. And so after two springs of trying to garden and my garden's getting flooded out, I was like, I need, just need a flat piece of land, you know, Mm -hmm. up on a, you know, like uh, not on a hill, but like higher up where Mm -hmm. I can just have a normal garden. So I felt ready in that way. Like there were things that I wanted to pursue that I really couldn't on that property. Mm -hmm. It was a unique place where we got to connect with nature and live amongst it, but like it was limited in Mm -hmm. the directions that we could grow. Yeah. That's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing all of that. So I'm just curious, did you have generators out there for any power at all? We did have a generator and we especially had to use it in the winter also in part because since it was kind of back in the hauler, you, you know, the sunlight was somewhat limited and we needed the generator for extra power in the winter. Was it in East Tennessee? It was in Southeast Ohio, which is actually also part of Appalachia. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. You use that word holler. That's a real Appalachian term. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I grew up with that word too. (laughs) Oh, that's so interesting. So I love what you said. You were, you know, you got to know the plants and you recognize them and you got to be friends with them. And I guess that's where you got the name Sister Nettle. (laughs) Yeah. She's a very, very powerful entity, isn't she? Yes. (laughs) Talk about her. I mean, how did you pick her out for your name? Yeah. So, well, that actually takes me back to that property in Ohio. One thing a lot of people don't know, because most people are familiar with stinging nettle, which is the European variety of nettle. Mm -hmm. And the most commonly, like if you're buying nettle anywhere dried for medicinal use, it's going to be stinging nettle. But there's actually a native wood nettle that's native here to the eastern U.S. And it looks a little bit different. It's shorter and has like rounder leaves. But I was very lucky to live on a property that actually had like acres of wood nettle 
seasonally like as far as I could see it was growing in the understory of the trees and so obviously it was if you've ever been around live nettle it stings you so it was something I discovered you know like what is this plant and it was like the first plant that I really learned about and because it was so abundant there I felt really you know confident in harvesting some and making tea and infusions so it was one of the first plants that I really worked with in that way and brought into my home so it's special for me in that way and I think also I love that nettle for a lot of people is kind of like a gateway plant it's one of the first plants it's such a simple, safe plant to make tea and infusion. It's so, you know, mineral rich. And so a lot of people come into the plant world and learn about nettle. It's just one of those ones. And so I loved that about it. And in the same way, you know, my work sometimes is kind of like a gateway for people too. like, I think it's fun how people maybe arrive at Sister Nettle for a number of different reasons. They might just innocently think my work is pretty right and just want to shop which is totally fine and you know then they end up going down these rabbit holes of learning about working with plants or you know slow fashion and can be really pivotal for them personally and so I kind of like that similarity you know to how nettle functions and how I feel like my business functions and choosing to I use the word sister was because when I first started embroidering I was doing a lot of custom work And I really, from the get-go, have just naturally found myself connecting a lot with my customers and the people who follow me. It's really a communal thing that happens with a lot of my ideas and my creating and It feels very much like a collaborative thing where I'm in relationship with those people. And for me, that is why I enjoy doing it. Like I would never enjoy just painting alone and then like, sending my work off to a gallery and never knowing who was buying it or how people were feeling, you know, like I love that element of it. So I really was thinking about myself and the business and how we're in relationship to the people who shop with us. Like I really want to bring that energy, that energy of friendship or sisterhood. So that was where that came from. That's wonderful. That's such an expression of like the new paradigm that we're always talking about that, you know, shifting from that, you know, just purely capitalistic, for lack of a better word. Yeah. You know, approach to work and livelihood and occupation. So I love that. That's very beautiful. Thank you. (laughs) So while we're on Sister Nettle, can you tell us a little bit about, I know things are crazy right now because you just moved, but generally what maybe a typical day looks like or how you manage your work with the business and how often you get to just create and come up with new things and maybe also tell us a little bit about what you do offer for sale for people listening who might not be familiar yet. So I feel like there has been different phases of work for me, you know, because I became a mom nine months ago. Oh, congrats. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, so my son is nine months old and that has this period has been very different from the years prior. So in the years prior, I was very much truly living and breathing my work, probably fit the definition of a workaholic, except for me, it was like very fulfilling and sustaining. Like I just loved it and enjoyed it and was just making art. So I was just always daydreaming and working. And then when my son was born, it became a lot more challenging to 
continue. And I knew I wouldn't be able to do as much as I had done. So that was why I was really intentional in hiring and training a team during my uh, pregnancy Mm -hmm. so that I could hand over a lot of the other duties and still be able to run the business. Yeah. But so for the last nine months, a lot of my work has been overseeing things. Like I do, people forget sometimes that there's a lot of computer work. It's not all just drawing and uh, daydreaming about plants. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of ordering and invoicing and just the logistics sometimes of all the different projects that we have going on and being in communication with the different companies and makers. So I do a couple hours of computer work every day that I work. And as far as outside of that, I always help on shipping days. I'm usually the one like generating all of our invoices and labels. I am hesitant to totally give that up because I really enjoy seeing like the familiar names and just kind of feeling like I know who's shopping with us and I don't want to be totally disconnected from that and and hand it off. So I'm still there on, on shipping days once a week. And then outside of that, as far as creating pieces and things, yeah, I feel like the way that different pieces come into being can be really different depending on the project, but we'll usually get interested in something. I'll become obsessed with like, maybe I want to work with a certain fabric or a certain natural dye. Like it'll start with one thing where I'm like, Mm -hmm. I want to do something with that. And then it will expand from there. And a lot of times too, as far as the themes and what I'm printing like the images that we print come from whether it's something that I'm like personally working through or something that I feel like is going on bigger for like the collective and the world you know and that might just be something as simple as the season being winter and thinking more about hibernation and more natural dolor colors and things like that or it might be you know something bigger that a lot of people are going through yeah so that's kind of how my weeks are like I used to spend all of my time essentially just production printing and shipping and have really honestly worked very hard to to get to the point to where I could have creative time again yeah so I'm starting to enjoy that and especially now that my son is getting a little bit older and more independent we'll hopefully have even more in coming months so that's wonderful so I'd like to know a little bit about your processes you do block printing did you say now are these prints something you do create the prints themselves or do you get those somewhere or the actual blocks thing Mm. (laughs) yeah the thing that makes the the image so I do a couple different things now as far as like creating a finished product Mm -hmm. some things I offer don't have anything printed on them occasionally I just work with a natural dye artist and we you know just have botanically dyed pieces so that's kind of like one category Mm -hmm. and then the core offering that we have is definitely block printed pieces and so In the same way that people make relief prints and print on paper and they're carving by hand, that's how all of my stamps are. Like they're all drawn out. I carve them by hand. And then those are, we use a speedball fabric ink and they're Mm -hmm. printed onto the clothing. So that's how that's made. And are they printed onto the finished clothing or do you print it on fabric and then make stuff out of the fabric? Okay. So till now, I've only ever printed on finished pieces. It's one of my goals is to step into printing on the raw fabric this year so that we're able to cut out essentially like a pattern Mm -hmm. and make the pieces. So I'm excited that's in the works for us. But I also think 
you know, one thing I've kind of loved about printing on the finished pieces that I feel like gives Sister Nettle a unique edge is because some of the way, like if you were to look at some of our designs, it would be really difficult for people to not be super wasteful in fabric if they were printing beforehand and sort of doing the custom prints like the placement that we're doing, since it's not Mm. just a repeating pattern. Mm -hmm. It also gives us, you know, this flexibility with being size inclusive is if a piece is is bigger and has more empty space, we're able to incorporate things or even make essentially like a second stamp that's slightly larger for the larger sizes has been like I think like a strength for us to offer that that's unique so yeah it's interesting that's one of those things impossible to understand until you like do it the trade-off between obviously it's much more efficient to do it the printing the raw fabric and creating and and kind of makes more sense systems wise but there is something so special about that finished thing and and it is more like a custom bespoke art piece in a way yeah that's awesome to hear and then they can all be kind of different too yeah yes everyone's unique like you look at it and you see where the the print goes (laughs) on this one might not be the same as the next one do you design the garments too like do you design the patterns and sew them yeah so I've also done and sourced a lot of different things. Like I've experimented with a lot of different things as far as that. When I initially started, I was, you know, ordering completed pieces of patterns that already existed. The earliest linen pieces that I worked with were from small companies in Lithuania. Mm -hmm. I had found through Etsy. Mm -hmm. I worked with one in particular called Epic Linen, and I've worked with them for a few years. So I just would order finished pieces that they sew and send. And then I've also worked with other sustainable U.S.-based brands where I might order a small batch of this tank top or these shorts or something like that. There's a handful that I like to order from. I think that they certainly know company hits all of the marks, but I kind of have a little checklist in my mind of when considering ordering from someone, what are they doing that maybe is at least encouraging the move and the shift for us to have more sustainable clothing and ethical clothing in particular. Mm -hmm. So I do that. And then just in the last year, I've started working with a local manufacturer in Nashville who it's woman owned and it's like a really great company. They have a four day work week. They have benefits. It's awesome. Like I've been there, you know, like I know the environment and the people who work there. So they are designing patterns for me and sewing and that's still done a few. We've released a few items and I also have a few in the works right now. That's awesome. I mean, it's very exciting. It's also more expensive and a lot of work. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> but I feel definitely motivated to be able to offer and really have sort of that creative control over the patterns. So Sure. And just like the investment in the whole process that you know the people and you can go there. There's something really fortunately that's super limited and hard to find in the states. <laughs> so that's it cool. Is. Yeah. I felt very excited and lucky to find them and be able to start working with them because prior to that I had done on what research I could and tried to find things and felt like I had no clue how I would begin. So especially at the scale that I'm at, which is pretty small. Sure. Yeah. You say they create the patterns. So do you have an idea about a basic style and then you go to them and they take it from there? That's right. Mm Mm-hmm kind of wanted to do this here and that here and that's kind of how we started out Mm -hmm. and somebody would make us a sample I mean until we got to where we wanted it and say okay this is it and then they'd make the pattern (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. So what are some of your biggest challenges in sustaining a business as an artist in today's marketplace? Especially sustaining a sustainable business. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel like, you know, for me personally, the biggest challenge over the last year has just been like burnout, personal burnout mm-hmm. be- with becoming a mom. And I still exclusively breastfeed my son. And so just the amount of sort of multitasking that I've had to do has been very hard. Like it's been very challenging and rewarding, you know, and that I've continued and I'm very proud of what I've done, but that's definitely been hard, you know, and I think it has to do with boundaries, but going through these cycles of feeling burnout with customer service or challenges with, there's been a lot of delays with fabric and production over the last year and just kind of navigating the realms of customer expectations and our limitations, like in the economy that we're currently working in and what's the best approach. I prefer to do pre-sold items because I don't like to just make an excess and then have to put them on sale or like that's completely not my approach. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, there's the gamble of doing pre-sold items and them taking longer than people anticipate. And Mm -hmm. so that's always kind of been something I navigated. And I think in the past, I was able to compensate because I was working so much that when things got behind or whatever, I could kind of just drop everything and work late into the night. And I can't do that. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. I can only do as much as I can do. And so if things are behind because of delays, we kind of just have to sit with it and be transparent about it, obviously. Mm -hmm. So all of that has been really hard this year. And I've kind of just taken it in stride knowing that like this is a phase and it will pass. I would say another challenge definitely in general is growth without capital, you know, like I don't have just tons of money to do some huge startup, not that I want to, Mm -hmm. but obviously anything I invest in, especially with slow fashion, you know, the idea from the moment I first maybe invest in fabric or a piece or a pattern for when it actually coming to fruition and people paying me for that, you know, is months. And that's a stressor, like a burden to carry, you know, Mm -hmm. behind the scenes that people don't always realize is going on. So that's been another challenge. Yeah, I think that's really helpful to hear. Thank you for sharing those because especially around the consumer expectations for Mm -hmm. both the time frame of things happening and also the cost of things, at least in our space. And then recently I feel that I'm noticing a certain level of understanding is more mainstream, but the space that we're all in is there are people outside of it that have no idea what we're talking about. (laughs) So I do think it's important to keep talking about it and just sharing your story. And of course, people are going to get frustrated if something's taking a long time, but I think that is where the work is. It's like, okay, let's talk about that. Like, why are we frustrated? Do we need this thing Mm -hmm. that badly? You know, like all these things that's like, let's look at our whole, our entire system and just sort of like reevaluating. And it it takes people like you to sort of be that example. So be out loud about it. And, and especially with on the other extreme, you have Amazon where, you know, now you can get some things the same day. (laughs) So people's expectations are really, really conditioned. So certainly a challenge is also, as Emma just said, it's an opportunity to look at the contrast between what we're doing and why things take certain amounts of time. Yeah. Why they take longer and why do they cost more? Right. Right. And, and why is this so cheap? Yeah. Yeah. 
there's so many things tied up into it. And it's all very, very interesting. And we've talked about this before on the podcast, but there's this sort of general assumption out there, kind of an entitlement that we've evolved through our systems that we as consumers deserve and expect or actually entitled to the most for the least. We're entitled to get a lot for the very least amount of money. And that's the expectation. And that's what we think that's right. You know, this should not cost X amount mm-hmm. of dollars, you know, because I'm the consumer and I need to be able to afford lots and lots of it. So what we try to do is turn that on its head and say, actually, it should cost more. And this is why, because there's a team of women behind this and they're moms and they're artists and they're giving us their time and they live someplace where the cost of living is higher and they need Mm -hmm. to be able to eat and house themselves just like you. So yeah, all these things are just, you know, it's just really good stuff to talk about put it out on the table. (laughs) Yeah, that is a great perspective. And something I've thought about could be related to food as well. Like when we think about the idea of going to the grocery and like price shopping and getting Mm -hmm. the cheapest deal is basically like the complete opposite of how I buy food right yeah, you know right. <laughs> like, because to me you know it's like it's health it's it's your life it's your body like skeptical um, when it's cheap you're like why is it yes. right <laughs> right yes you know which greenwashing can take advantage of sure. that too mm-hmm. but to just to be informed and recognize that if you're an informed consumer you're paying more for something that is mm-hmm. ultimately like a better product and the way that that flows into you know with food in a very literal physical sense the health of our bodies and our families but that's also true when we think about clothing you know yes. if you explore like the energetic relationship between purchasing a garment and really thinking about what is this material you know yeah. what is this material that's on my body what's that doing to my body what's that doing to the environment when it eventually can't be worn anymore the people who made it what's their quality of life how were they feeling what was their environment like when this garment was made you know and ultimately what is me wearing this and supporting that going out into the world what is that feeding right you know like yes. which wolf are you feeding kind of a thing and there's so much in that and i think it is so beautiful to talk about that that the end goal you you know, and I'll never talk about my products as if I'm trying to get to the bottom line or make them cheaper. Because if yeah. I was, I would just take my designs and I would go to some company in China mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. Alibaba or whatever and have them just print it you know, on the cheapest clothes and just sell thousands of them or something, right? Mm -hmm. Like, of course, that could be done in theory. But like, to me, that's like the dead version of my clothing, Mm -hmm. like it's the whole essence of it would be stripped away. So it's cool to to talk about that and get people thinking like that about the garment. I feel like that's such a shift and really makes people excited. Mm -hmm. They have this relationship to what's going on with that company or that maker. Yeah. Yeah. And when you do start talking about this and the immediate reaction is often, well, yeah, that sounds great, but I can't afford it or a lot of people out there can't afford it. And we have to create a a system of equality where all people have access to things. So I think this gives also an opportunity to 
think that and that in trying to create an equality of accessibility, you're creating a huge inequality in a system that makes those things accessible, if that makes any sense. It does. Yeah. Yes. And what do we truly need? Yes. Equality doesn't necessarily mean everyone can get as many clothes as they want for the cheapest amount. You <laughs> exactly. know, it's like we don't need. Right. That's the thing. And that's kind of, I feel like, where it's gone. I would love to see a world or a paradigm shift or a sort of an energetic shift where people are shopping and they see something that's a very cheap price. They want to go, why is that so cheap? Mm-hmm. And they look at it in just the ways that you just described, Meg. And that's just a kind of reversal of the way it is now. Now, shopping, and, you know, I grew up this way. You shop for entertainment, and the game is to find as much as you can for as cheap as you can and buy it up because you can have all this because mm-hmm. it doesn't cost very much. And so we get to mm-hmm. have all these things. Well, something that I find interesting about how we value things, we've talked about this a couple times on this podcast too, is that throughout history, when we look at the percentage allocated of income to certain things. So George Washington, for example, we had someone from Mount Vernon on the podcast and she explained textile production and garment yeah. production in the 18th century. And correct me if I'm wrong, George George Washington allocated 40% of his income to textiles. Yeah. 40%. And so, like, Mm -hmm. when we think about today, like, what if our budgets for clothing was 40% of our income? Now, what's funny is it's like... That's basically like our housing, which is still way too crazy. And then when you were talking, something you were saying earlier made me think, this is, like, crazy. But, you know, houses are obviously, like, super important. But clothes, they're closer to our body we spend more time in them every day. They're like such a sacred part of us. And like in a way, there's like really creative things that we could do with housing that we can't do with clothing. Like we need, we need, need, need clothing. <laughs> so it, mm-hmm. it is interesting to me that at one point in history, like we literally valued clothing yeah. more than we did our housing. Yeah. In fact, it was the most expensive yeah. thing in the budget. Everything else, the, the housing, the food. Um, the building maintenance and everything yeah. was less than the textiles. And working with enough people who having, you know, bought things from people who've hand knitted or hand woven things or dyed things or sewn things like that's not surprising to me at all. You know, yeah. like I've thought about it a lot and I understand why people literally had three outfits. Right. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> because like, how could you afford more or how could anyone have the time yeah. to make more in a year? So that to me makes total sense, you know, because I work with a number of people who are starting from scratch to make these items. So it is a huge shift to think about what it should mm-hmm. cost. Mm-hmm. And there's the other reality too, hearing people disconnected from the production of clothing and textiles, talking about accessibility of textiles, mm-hmm. sitting here and knowing what I'm paying people and how much time it's taking them. I'm thinking there's no margin for what you're talking about because yeah. if you want it to be more affordable, that means I would have to pay myself and my employees less. And I'm not willing to do that. That's why, you know, for me, that's always been a hard line too, where the clothes I make are not necessity items. Mm -hmm. Like people are investing in a statement piece or something that they want. And it would be so wrong to try to pay myself or my employees less than what we're currently getting paid to create something that ultimately is a luxury item for them. Sure. Yes. Another thing that we say on here often, which I think bears repeating, there's a lot of interest and expression and passion about social equality these days. 
And a lot of people like to put these things onto social media, but I like to challenge people to go look in your closet and look through your closet and think about social equality in those terms, rather than Mm -hmm. just, you know, what we think or what we think should be different or what we think someone else should be doing, how each of us can really embrace that in our own lives and our own consumerism. And I think most people are not really, really aware what a huge piece of it that is because of the systems that are in place there. And we really have to be super conscious and super intentional in acting outside of those systems. And as we've just been saying, we kind of have to condition ourselves to being able to pay a little more and buy less rather than the other way around. And then the question is for those who cannot afford the completely ethically sustainably produced items, What are they supposed to do? Well, there's a lot of answers to that question, but that's the most messed up thing is that what's inaccessible is doing it a healthy way for everyone? Question mark. Yeah. (laughs) Why is that the inaccessible thing? Yeah. Someone said in one of our podcasts, I think it was Heidi Barr of Kitchen Garden Textiles. She said, I can't afford to buy this thing. And the answer is, and when you're buying the things that you can't afford that's what's keeping you poor. Right. It reminds me of, I'm taking this business course by Sarah Chappelle. And one of the thing, you know, little catchy phrases that she says is like, you can't hustle your way into rest. Like if you're running your business in a, a hustling sort of mindset, a work, work, work mindset with the idea that you're going to reach the day where you can mm-hmm. sit back. Mm-hmm. That's not how it works. Like you have to set up the system right now and, mm. and move into that system right now. And so that's been something oh. I've definitely been keeping in, in my thoughts, you know, as I make moves this year. Yeah. Yeah. Good for you. I think that goes for the consumer too. Mm-hmm. You can't buy your way to whatever it is. Abundance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You hit the nail on yeah. the head there. I love this. This is so great. Do you have sources of fabric that whatever you call sustainable, whatever that is for you, it's different things for different people, but would interest in like where you source your fabric and what are those standards for you for what you do? It's not the same for everybody. Great question. So since I'm just kind of stepping into the manufacturing side myself, I haven't ordered a ton of raw fabric on my own. Mm -hmm. The most common thing I've ordered has been linen. And other than it being 100% linen, I haven't really done specific sourcing beyond that for it. Whenever I order linen items that are sewn in Lithuania they're 100% the oikotex if that's yeah. mm-hmm. how you say that okay so another element that we haven't really talked about is I do offer some more affordable things which is like I work with some silkscreen tees and long sleeves and sweatshirts and I've spent a lot of time trying to source those where it feels good and it feels right. And it's a really high quality product as well. So I'm really in a good place right now. The tees and the sweats that I work with are 100% cotton. The sweats that I'm just starting to offer are 100% recycled cotton. They're all grown and sewn in the US under ethical labor, like very transparent about their processes and their wages. So I'm really proud to offer that, to be able to say that my t-shirts and my sweats are cotton and US grown and just knowing that people are paid well. Definitely for me, my number one parameter, like if I'm able to source a clothing item or fabric, I always try to start thinking about what people are being paid. Um, Like I would choose that over something being organic. 
Mm-hmm. For me, like I value that more at this time. Obviously, I'd love to get both, but there can be a trade off, especially like the options around organic cotton are not ideal. Most of it comes from China under questionable labor. Yeah. So for me, I would prefer to work with non organic cotton right now and know that people are being paid well. Yeah. So since I am having some new things manufactured myself this year, I am starting to work with hemp. So I'm really excited about that. And yeah, hemp and it is actually hemp and organic cotton blends. I'm sure they are not grown in the U.S. I don't believe that they are. Mm -hmm. A company that I work with pretty regularly is called Sinu Moon. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but no, we haven't heard of them. Yeah, you'll have to check them out. The owner is Carly Moon, and we've been working together for a few years, and she's really a wonderful person. And so, a lot of her stuff is sewn with hemp and bamboo, oh. and that was how I got that fabric connection through her. So cool! That's so interesting. Yeah. We love hemp. We worked a little bit with hemp, and the hemp yeah. cotton blend. There's a hemp linen blend too. That's really beautiful. We did, I guess, five years ago. Now we we did our first little line of a sustainable clothing, and after we did that, we sort of branched off into other things for obvious reasons. You know, manufacturing was something we decided we wouldn't go into yeah. full on. I'm sure you get it. (laughs) Yes, I do. (laughs) So we've had our adventures with the different sourcing and the struggles. And the funny thing is, and we've told this story so many times, is when we started out, we had no idea how challenging that was going to be. And now, five years later, there's probably things out there that weren't around when we were doing this. But the hemp thing, now that it's legal to grow in the United States, but we're still not really getting American grown hemp because the infrastructure is so way behind. So, but you know all that. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Things continue to improve, you know, like two years ago when I was desperately looking everywhere for sustainable sweatshirts and tees, there was Mm -hmm. nothing, there was nothing available to me. And now I have an abundance, you know, I have multiple different companies I can order from that I feel really good about their product. So like, I hope that that continues to improve, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously it would be the dream to source all of my textiles made within the U.S. Like, you know, I want to support our domestic mm-hmm. economy and also get textile that's made under our labor laws as well. Right. So. And uh, you're so right that you have to decide what's most important for you and deciding. Yeah. Some of that stuff is just mutually exclusive. Yeah. Like it you want to, you buy things yeah. based on what the people were paid. That's like a hundred percent valid. You know, even if it's not organic, you are picking that thing that you want to support and that's cool. People need to understand that too. Like you can't, we say this over and over, you can't check all the boxes. You have to decide which boxes you're going to go for. Yes. So yeah. anyway. Um, a great source too for um, blanks. I'm sure you've run across them, but we had him on the podcast, Eric at Solid yeah. State Clothing in North Carolina. Have you found them? Oh, I'll have yes. to check them out. I feel like I'm familiar with them and I'll have to look at it again. So. It's TS Designs uh-huh. is like the overall thing. And then okay. Solid State is like their in-house. They do like, they've, done screen printing um but they've Mm -hmm. just developed and he's like friends with the farmers and it's all in north carolina like super local to him so that's very cool very cool yeah i will definitely yeah he has an organic line but he also has a non-organic line um, yeah sort of what you were saying he's buying it from his neighbor yeah the guy you know Mm -hmm. right there so and he's right up front he goes no this is not organic but this this is my neighbor. He's in the community. Yeah. It's putting his kid through college. Like, I know. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. very interesting. Meg, what do you think about slow living? What does it mean to you? And 
how do you embrace slow living? So I have to say, it's kind of funny because when you guys asked to interview me, I was like, this is so cool. And at the same time, I really don't walk around thinking of myself as like slow living and slow fashion. I don't, not that I'm not, I totally am within that realm. But you know, I think sometimes, at least on social media and with people who are really the carrying the torch, there's a lot of perfectionism in all of that. And it does start to feel overwhelming and inaccessible to anyone, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think that's why I don't jump at labeling myself or my company that also because there's kind of a trend of the consumers looking for that perfection mm-hmm. and sort of having a canceling mindset based on that. Yeah. So all that to say my, you know, relationship to slow living is the idea of moving towards that end goal, but reaching the end goal, that's not really the goal. Like the goal in life is to be in relationship with those ideas mm-hmm. and incorporating those things as you're able. Right. So whether that's having your own herb garden or just literally going for a walk every day, whatever that looks like for you little by Mm -hmm. little, I really think it's about the journey and building relationship with that way of living, if that makes sense. Yes. It's the practice of slow living more so than like the achievement of slow living. Yes. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yes. It's incremental and it's, you know, once you start, once you just become aware of what that means for you, then you you kind of grow into it. It's not something you wake up and go, I'm going to embrace slow living from now on (laughs) and put it on Instagram. It's not exactly (laughs) like that. (laughs) Yeah. So what does a good dirt mean to you? And you can answer that any way that comes up. I kind of, in thinking about it, ended up on a different path, which really was thinking more about the good dirt being sort of the energy that surrounds us in these exchanges, like even us three prioritizing and making the time to sit here and have this conversation and trust that there are people out there who value it enough to support us in what we do and want to see this exist. And just kind of like that leap of faith into the unknown and almost visualizing the good dirt of those actions and those beliefs, like surrounding us, like an aura, you know, and like the richness and complexity of those relationships as they ripple out the things that we do and put into motion because we believe in good dirt. Oh, excuse me. I wipe a tear from it. I really, really love that. I haven't thought about it like that before. Like the way that roots are in soil, it's kind of like fish and water, right? Like it's everything they see. It's everything they know. And like maybe what we're doing here, what all of us are doing is cultivating, you said, I hadn't thought about like an aura, but getting it to a point to where we don't see it anymore. We don't notice it. It just is. It's not something we're reaching for. It's something that just surrounds us. It's really cool. Thank you. Well, is there anything else that you want people to understand about the work that you do or anything that you want to leave our audience with today? This was a great conversation. Like I loved everything we talked about. People listening in are totally new to Sister Nettle. I would, if you use Instagram, Instagram recommend following me on there beyond just making and selling clothing. I spend a lot of time on my stories there and not to toot my own horn, but like, I think it's a fun place to be. We do a lot of polls and questions and I really share a lot of my creative process, take input from people, ideas. It's a very collaborative thing. And so, you know, if you're interested and you just looking at my stuff like it, I recommend following there because there's kind of this whole other layer of what goes on with making our clothing than just seeing the finished and 
product and buying it. Yeah, that's so beautiful. Thanks for that reminder. And then you have a website. Tell us a little bit more about how people can find you and what they'll find. Absolutely. So I've got my website, sisternettle.com. You can subscribe to the email list there too. I have lots of people who don't love Instagram. I understand that and just want to get the updates. Um, I just send out emails like whenever I'm having a new release. And I've got my Instagram. And then I also just a few months ago started a Patreon as well. So that's kind of a different little branch of of what I'm doing. But there's different tiers there, obviously, with benefits. I would say like the core tier being one where every month I kind of create like a little gift package. And I'm block printing either on paper or a textile. Like next month is going to be decor pillows. So you kind of get something new every month printed and sent out. Oh, that's great. That's available too. That's awesome. So thank you so much for being with us today, Meg. And we just enjoyed it and I love the conversation. So I hope to talk to you soon. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Good Dirt Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll share it with a friend to spread the good dirt. This show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow-living lifestyle community, and the original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at WeAreLadyFarmer. That's WeAreLadyFarmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on The Good Dirt. Goodbye.